Welcome to the East Bay's best podcast, The Capstone Conversation. This is a show that interviews political, government, and community leaders in Alameda, Contra Costa, and Solano counties. We look at what is going on in your city, how are we developing things economically, and where are we going from here? I'm your host, Jared Ash. Welcome to this episode of the Capstone Conversation. This episode is going to focus on what is happening in January of 2024 in Sacramento. What are the priorities of the governor? What are the priorities of the legislature this year? And we're going to take a look with the year ahead in Sacramento. What should we know and how does it affect everybody throughout the entire state? So I'm joined uh, by a friend of mine, somebody I've worked with a number of times in Sacramento, and just a good guy. He's going to introduce himself in a minute, but we're going to try to dive into what is happening in Sacramento for 2024, and what do you need to know on a local level? Well, I'm, my name's Chris McKaylee. I'm a lobbyist here in Sacramento, an attorney by training but have been a lobbyist at the California State Capitol now for nearly three decades. It's hard to believe that it's actually been that long, but that seems to be the case. And I'm also an adjunct professor at McGeorge School of Law, as well as at UC Davis King Hall School of Law. In the last few years, I have published a number of textbooks and casebooks related to the California state government, particularly the legislature and the legislative process. And we're going to link to those textbooks and his blog post in here. It's really informative for our guests about the just really the process and how the legislative process works. So let's start with the legislature for this. Talk to us about what are key dates of the legislature and what is the initial process that we'll see over the next three or four months? Well, Jared, like our federal Congress and most states, California's legislature works in biennium or two-year sessions, the odd-numbered year being the first year. So 2023 was the first year. And so 2024 election year is the second and final two, second year of the two-year term. What does that mean? Well, legislators just returned to the Capitol on January 3rd. And the first order of business is what we call two-year bills or carryover bills. These are measures that were left over from the first year of the session. Again, similar to many other states in the federal government, the California Constitution allows bills in the first year to carry over the second year as long as they pass what we call the House of Origin by January 31st. What does that mean? Assembly bills have to clear the state assembly by uh, January 31st, 2024. Senate bills have to clear the Senate chamber by then. At the same time, legislators are getting back into the swing of things by, of course, introducing bills. California was opposed to the U.S. Congress uh, is very deadline driven. So we have a deadline when things must happen, including when bills have to be introduced, which this year is Friday, February 16th. 
So a lot of legislators are putting together their legislative package, which they'll be working on for the remainder of the 2024 legislative session. The big news of January is always the constitutional requirement, the 10th day of the calendar year, the Constitution says. Our governor must submit his balanced budget proposal. So we're all waiting in anticipation of the release of the governor's proposal, often referred to as the Jan 10 budget or the January budget, again, because of that constitutional requirement. And then the subcommittees of the budget committees in the Assembly and Senate will start considering the governor's proposal later in February. And then, Jared, in early March, the legislature standing committees will consider all those bills that they're introducing between now and February 16th. So that's the next, the first quarter, if you will, of the 2024 calendar year in the California legislature. So I want to come back to something you said. It has to pass the House origin by January 31st. That sounds like that's quick because we haven't even seen all the bills yet. Yeah. So in the first year, there's every year between 2,300, 2,500 bills are introduced every year. About a thousand of them get down to the governor's desk and about 85% of them get signed. So they dispense with a fair number of bills every year, 1046, 1,046 got down to the governor last year, and his veto rate was 14.9%. Those remaining bills, okay, more than 1,500 of them, obviously didn't make it through the process, but they stopped at different points. Some were never even set for their first hearing in their house of origin. Others made it to the fiscal committee, the second step. Some made it to the floor of their house of origin. And then a number of bills made it over to the second house. So we're, they're only dealing, the legislature's only dealing this month with those bills that again are still in the assembly for assembly bills, the Senate for Senate bills. Some of them were never heard, but some of them again stopped along the way, the fiscal committee are on the floor. In the end, even though, what, 1,500 or so are eligible, there will be fewer than about 125 bills between the two houses that are actually taken up this month of uh, January. For example, earlier this morning, I went by two policy committees of the state Senate. One had a single bill, and the second one had three bills. That's abnormal. I I know you're familiar with, Jared, in the hearings that we'll have in the months of March and April in particular, some of these committees will have 25, even 50 or 60 bills per hearing. So most of them had one, two, or maybe three or so at most during the month of January. So it's a very small number, but still, as you note, several of them have never been heard before and they're getting their very first hearing now. And if somebody has a new legislative idea, it's, it's kind of in the last couple of weeks to get it introduced at, at this point of the year, right? Yeah, they'll have until February 16th. But as you're familiar with, I always like to say there are two introduction deadlines. And of course, folks always uh, raise question with that because if you look at 
the calendar of the Assembly and Senate, you'll note there's only one. It says last day to introduce bills is Friday, February 16th. In California, we have something relatively unique. We call them placeholder bills. And what I mean by that is not all 2,000 plus bills that will get introduced between now and February 16th have substantive law changes in them. There are three types of placeholder bills. We call them spot bills. And those are bills that just make a little innocuous technical change, literally changing and to, well, that's a substantive one, excuse me, maybe adding a comma or modifying it so that it is what we call gender neutral drafting. Instead of saying policeman, they'll strike it out and put in police officer. Okay. Those are technical or non-substantive changes. Those are spot bills. The second type is what we call intent bills. And literally, Jared, they will say either a general or specific statement. The legislature intends to introduce a bill on taxation broad, or it is the intent of the legislature to adopt a tax credit for businesses that offer housing to homeless individuals. You have a pretty good idea of what that bill is going to look like substantively. And then the third and final type is one that just has some what we call legislative findings and declarations. The legislature finds and declares that homelessness is a serious problem. The legislature finds and declares that the state should address homelessness in the state, et cetera. That doesn't make any substantive change in the law. Why do people have placeholder bills? They have an idea. Maybe it's not entirely fleshed out. So they're just holding a spot because remember, they have to get it in by February 16th. So Assembly Member X says, not quite sure what I'm going to do on homelessness, but I'm going to throw in this intent bill or spot bill. And then about three weeks later, I have to have the substantive language in. And that is where my second <laughs> introduction deadline is. That's when we see the language of lots of bills uh, actually come into print to the public. No, that's really helpful for most of our listeners to understand. Yeah. And half these listeners are familiar with the process and half our listeners, it's new to that. So let's talk about some of the bills that we're going to see this year. What, I know we're recording this on January 9th. So we are before that bill filing deadline. Right. We haven't seen all of them, but we have an idea of some of them have been filed and some have been talked about. What are we going to see? What are the key issues that are coming up? Well, I think that we can, for example, last Thursday, the speaker, Robert Rivas, highlighted three particular issue areas, he said. The first was climate change, the second housing slash homelessness and affordable housing, and the third crime. I think he's got a real emphasis on retail theft. You're, we've already seen a handful of bills. Look, in the last week, <clears throat> there have been fewer than 50 bills introduced. Remember, we're going to hit 23, 2400 by February 16th. So it's a small number. I think the other, look, cl climate is, is always a big deal. I think homelessness and housing, of course. There's been, again, a lot of attention that's, in fact, the governor said he would like uh, earlier today, he stated that he would like to see some legislation 
uh, targeting those who are significant perpetrators of retail theft. Insurance, the insurance marketplace, not only for homeowners, such as in fire-prone areas, but even those facing limited number of options in getting auto insurance, for example, is another particularly important topic. Things dealing with uh, funding of education, of transportation, but some of those will be largely dependent upon what the budget situation looks like. Labor and employment is always a popular area. Uh, labor unions in California yeah. are, are a very significant political and legislative force. And so they're always successful in creating a number of new laws to, depending on your point of view, protect workers or impose new mandates on employers in the state, et cetera. <clears throat> so we've got a number of uh, issue areas that will you know, be very ripe for legislative action, no doubt. That's great. I want to come back to that transportation one in particular. There's a lot of need for public transportation. Bus agencies, yep. are in particular here in the Bay Area, have been hurting ever since COVID, right? And it coincides to return to work, right? So BART is up to 40% on weekday travel. Consistent with that, the number of people going back to work on a daily basis is up to about 40% or going back to Oakland or San Francisco. And so it, it ties together. They've got that fiscal cliff. What is the, how is the state looking at that process? Well, the governor and the legislature last year included $2 billion in one-time spending allocated to the transit agencies in this state. The big question mark, there was a tremendous effort last year in defending those dollars, and despite a threat to take some or all of them away, the, transport, the public transportation sector Los Angeles MTA, of course, the Bay Area transit agencies were successful in persuading the legislature to keep, again, a significant amount, over $2 billion in one-time spending. Unfortunately, with the budget deficit or LAO, the Legislative Analyst Office, sort of the state equivalent to the Congressional Budget Office, uh, they're both independent, nonpartisan advisors to the legislative branch of government on fiscal matters. And they've suggested the legislature look at some of the one-time spending and any new programs that have come in the last year or two as potential areas to reduce or hold up spending on. So I think public transportation in this state not only faces the consequences of fiscal shortfalls, ridership shortfalls, but also a renewed threat this year that some or all of the money appropriated to them uh, by the state, some additional funding may go by the wayside. Now, some local jurisdictions, of course, have half-cent sales taxes, for example. They have federal dollars. So there are some streams of money, but public transit in this state is, is definitely in need of some of those state funds. So it would really be a tremendous blow to getting 
ridership back up. And in a lot of areas like the Bay Area and Los Angeles, uh, many people, particularly lower income individuals, their only means of transportation, getting to work, getting to school, to and from, is dependent upon public transportation. They don't have the option or the luxury of, well, maybe I can take BART or I can drive my car today. So it's important that we have that option for those who, again, their only means of getting to work or school is by public transportation. Yeah. And I, I work with a business improvement district here in Walnut Creek that's in an office park, but they have a bus that they pay for people to come from a BART station yeah. down the, the main roads into it in Walnut Creek. Yeah. And we did a polling survey of people taking the bus over the course of a month and it really was people going to work in medical offices or in the one shopping center. So people who are going to oh, work at Safeway supermarket in stock or cashiers uh, or at the pet store, or it was a medical assistant or the front desk person at a medical office. And that's who was taken. And, and this was a free bus provided by the property owners for people. And I think it really woke the property owners up in that poll to say, wow, we really are providing a service. We should increase awareness of the bus. Okay. So it just goes back to what you were talking about with public transit does have a need, not just the everyday commun business commuters who are lawyers going from a suburb into the city, but it provides an essential need for other workers. So let's keep talking about the budget there because that's come up. The state last year had a $90 billion in surplus. This year, we're talking about a deficit. We're talking about mass cuts everywhere we're hearing. Fill us in. How does the state budget process work? Why are we seeing these cuts? And what does that mean? Is it one-time spending or agencies getting cut back? Walk us through that. Yeah. Well, first of all, these figures, whether it was the surplus from 2022 or the upcoming, the current 23-24 and the upcoming 24-25 fiscal year, these are three-year figures. So it's not one-time 90 billion the next year, 68. These are over a period of three years, number one. Number two, California's budget is primarily the general fund. And the number one contributor to the general fund of what we call the big three tax sources is the personal income tax, what we call the PIT, P-I-T, personal income tax. The second largest is from the sales tax. When you purchase an item at the store, we have some exemptions for certain things. And then the third is the bank and corporation tax. And then we have other taxes like fuel taxes and tobacco taxes and insurance taxes. But the big three, personal income, sales, and bank and corporate. The personal income tax, by far the largest, some 60 plus percent of the general fund is largely dependent upon the wealthy in this state. We have a truly progressive tax rate in the state of California, meaning the more you make, the more you pay, right? It's not a, a flat or one tax rate, say 5% per everybody. So you also don't pay taxes uh, for a fair amount of income. But once you do, it starts and progressively gets very high. 
Uh, we're at over 13% now, including like the millionaire surcharge for mental health. We have the largest, I'm sorry, the highest personal income tax rates in the nation today. We have certainly the highest uh, base sales tax rate from the state level uh, the, in the Western U.S. We have, I think, around the 12th or 14th highest corporate tax rate. So we're a very high tax state, but again, our budget is so largely dependent upon the not even the 1%, maybe the half percent. Where do they make a lot of money? They're not salaried workers, right? They make a lot of money off investments. So capital gains and stock options. And 2023 was a slow year. It wasn't great for the stock market. It ended on a bang, right? But most of the year it did not. I think they had a a very significantly lower amount of initial stock op, stock initial public offerings IPOs where companies go from private to public ownership and so the one percenters were not making as much which means they weren't paying as much taxes to the state and so what that means is that we have lots of ups and downs in our revenue stream now to be fair the California legislature placed on the ballot and voters adopted Prop 2, which created the so-called Rainy Day Fund. And the idea of the Rainy Day Fund that now has, you know, two dozen billion dollars in it, which is significant. It's larger than many state budgets around the country. But when we have a $300 billion overall budget in the state of California, it's not a huge amount, obviously. Anyways, what that tries to do, it can't go larger that that rainy day fund, more than 10% of the overall budget. But the idea is to take some of that so-called one-time stock option and capital gain money and put it away, not put it towards one-time spend or sorry, ongoing spending. So when we have some downturns in the economy, like did in 2023, tax revenues go down and it impacts the state. Now, we haven't really dipped into the reserve yet. We may have to do that. As you noted, we have lots of one-time spending, give or take eight to $12 billion over the next fiscal year or so. And you might have to pare some of that back or eliminate some of it. So there are a few options for the legislature, I think, before they actually have to make true spending cuts like they did in the early 2000s, for example. That's really helpful, I think, to understand the process, but to talk about it. So I'll get into a comparison with Texas or Florida, right? California's biggest rivals. A lot of our companies have moved to Texas in particular. And people say it's the tax rates, right? You talked about a very high tax rate here. What is what does California get for those higher taxes? I know that's a broad question. I don't want to have a policy argument in one way or another on taxes, but help us just understand there are good advantages to that. Yeah, we have one of the best university systems, certainly in the nation and worldwide. Look, due to Prop 98, which was adopted by 
the voters in this state more than 35 years ago guarantees about four out of every five tax dollars goes through K through 14. That's kindergarten through high school plus community colleges, K through 14 spending, what we call the minimum funding guarantee. Yes, in certain downtimes, they can suspend that requirement. But for the most part, again, 40 odd percent of every tax dollar goes to education. The next biggest area is health and human services, whether it's Medi-Cal providing health and human service benefits to those who can least afford it in this state. After that, we have much smaller things. Funding government, like the legislature and the governor, are small potatoes. Prisons cost a fair amount. Our state prisons do, whether it's other forms of state spending on transportation, for example. All of those things are very small in comparison to the amount that, again, the two major expenditure areas of state of the state budget are education and health and human services. So earlier you talked, when you talked about some categories, you talked about retail theft and clean energy, homelessness, labor and employment. What kind of bills do you think we're going to see in those four categories? Well, one of the biggest on the crime side, retail theft in particular, because I think I don't think that the legislature really wants to revisit the so-called tough on crime type measures. They philosophically, the majority of the legislature does not believe in the lock them up mentality, whether it's drug convictions or other things. They want to go to more of the root causes of these types of issues. They definitely want rehabilitation and readjustment into society of people. Again, not a lock them up and throw away the key. On retail theft, I think that there's a recognition that presents a significant problem, not just for retailers, for businesses in the state, but for also the public. It helps drive people to online shopping. Uh, for example, right? And that has great implications for local jurisdictions, especially those who, for example, are dependent upon the jobs and the tax revenues from those retail centers, for example. And I think that there's a lot of legislators who differentiate between the one-time person or an individual who walks out of a store with some groceries or some other items, not to discount that it is a crime to do so, but I think they differentiate between that and maybe what we'll call like more of the organized retail theft folks, the, the true crime rings, or better yet, some of those groups of 40 and 50 people who go into a retail establishment and smash and grab, they call it, right? And everyone grabs something and runs out of the retail establishment. I think for those types of folks, and again, especially the retail crime rings, they do want to enhance penalties and go after those folks. Part of the debate, Jared, is on Prop 47, which among its provisions, this was passed by the voters of California, don't forget, was to lower the, or I'm sorry, to increase the amount up to 950 from four or $450 the amount be for 
theft qualifies for a felony prosecution. And if they want to change that, they're going to have to go back to the voters. So you've got two camps, if you will, in the legislature on this issue, some who believe that we should take it back to the people and have them re-vote because a lot of people, a lot of the public are concerned about retail theft and we think that they'll change it, strengthen it. And there are others who say, why are we entertaining that? The voters have already spoken on this issue. So there definitely is a difference of opinion and we'll see that come out a lot this year. And as you noted, it's an election year, and this is something that's popular with the voters. Some of the other issues, the legislature has always been concerned, certainly the last decade plus, with climate change and all of that. I'm not sure it's as high on the voters' radar screen (laughs) as it is with legislators, but nonetheless, they'll bring attention to it and always looking for efforts for the state of California to be the proverbial leader in that area. Homelessness, affordable housing continues to be a perennial issue. The legis- the governor, the legislature have all tried to, whether it's expedite permitting, put more money. Over the last couple of years, we've spent in excess of $12 billion trying to combat it. The governor and the legislature placed, there will be just one measure, statewide measure, Jared, on the March 5th primary ballot for our statewide voters. It's Prop 1 designated by the legislature and governor's prop one. And it's revising that millionaire's tax that we referred to for mental health services. So it won't impact you and me, right? Most most listeners, but those who have income in excess of a million dollars pay a 1% surcharge. The governor in prop one and the legislature would like to kind of rejigger, not that amount or that tax, but how it is spent and give more of it towards uh, mental health uh, treatment uh, and try to get more people who are homeless those sort of mental health services that they need. So clearly, by the voters, as well as legislative action, homelessness is going to continue to be a very hot topic. And I think a lot of people are also talking about insurance. I have friends and family who, if they can find an insurer... They're paying more than they ever have. You probably read in the papers that the insurance commissioner just approved for one of the major insurers a 20% increase in insurance premiums, meaning they'll be allowed to continue to operate in this state, but they'll be able to charge some people 20% more. So if you're paying $1,000 a year for your insurance, it's now $1,200. That can be very significant for a lot of citizens of this state. Yeah, that is a significant number. And you've heard of that in, in going back to those those opposite states that we compete with, Texas and Florida, that's actually been a negative in those states, is insurance prices skyrocket. So it's what's causing it here? I know you're not an insurance expert, but what's driving it here and what kind of bills might we see regarding it? Well, I guess it depends on your point of view. The consumer advocates don't view it in the same way as insurance companies and vice versa. But California, in 1988, the voters adopted Proposition 103. And that did two things. It created the office of the insurance commissioner, an elected position. Now in the state, in other states, that individual, the insurance commissioner is generally appointed by 
the governor, the chief executive in California is elected. And then secondly, we Prop 103 basically regulates all forms of insurance in this state except workers' compensation. So whether it's for your home, property insurance, or your automobile insurance, et cetera, those have to go through what we call a prior review. So the rates are regulated with a reasonable profit determined. And the idea is to keep them, those rates as affordable as possible. And the insurers must submit their proposed rates that they're going to charge. And those are, those go through a process of review and consumer groups and others, for example, can actually what they call intervene in those rate proceedings and dispute or challenge what the insurer plans to charge. And they, once they are, have those rates approved by the commissioner, then that's all they're allowed to legally charge customers in the state. Well, if they claim that if they can't properly account and take into consideration other things like the high rate of wildfires in this state and properly account for it, that they'll simply stop writing insurance. And I'm sure last year you saw the news, as did probably most, if not all of your listeners, about how some of the major insurers in this state stopped writing new policies. So if you wanted to switch from one to the other, or you bought a car for the first time, or you are a first-time homeowner, you not you may not be able to find an insurer. Now the state has the state becomes what we call the insurer of last resort, but that's not a very cheap alternative these days either. Mm-hmm. To be fair, the fair plan, F A I R. I forget what the acronym stands for. But the insurer that the state is basically the insurer of last resort, but that's not that doesn't help with an insurer a healthy insurance market. And whether it's businesses or individuals, property owners, retailers, individuals, automobile owners in this state, motorcycle owners, et cetera, we need insurance to operate. Our economy would come to a complete standstill if we didn't have insurance. And so insurers have long complained that because of Prop 103, that they can't get rates approved that really adequately ensure that they can insure all the risk in this state. And the insurance commissioner with some new authority granted by the governor by executive order last fall has begun authorizing some higher rates and they could be very significant. Again, we saw an improved one at 20% for one of the state's largest insurers. We might see more of those to follow. That's great. And you talked about a little bit about labor's growing strength in California and in the legislature. Yeah. What, and they've been at odds with some of the business entities, the chambers, the business roundtable. Uh, what kind of bills can we expect labor to push forward from their friends? Bo- both good and bad. We're not debating that. Just yeah. what's coming down the pike? What are they talking about right now? Yeah. Organized labor unions in the state play an important role. I think for someone who works in the legislature as a lobbyist, primarily for the business community, to be fair, I would probably view their power as 
uh, too significant in the legislature, but it is what it is. They do play an important uh, role in trying to advance the interests of uh, workers in the state, particularly those who are members of labor unions in the state in particular. They have a very aggressive agenda, as they always have. They saw a number of significant measures last year enacted, whether it was increasing the number of paid sick days for every worker in the state from three to five, whether it was the increases in the minimum wage. All fast food workers will go from what is now $16 an hour for everybody uh, to $20 an hour April 1. We'll see an increase in the minimum wage eventually rising to $25 an hour for workers in healthcare facilities. As a result of earlier legislation of a dozen years ago, every year the minimum wage goes up due to a CPI index. And so every worker gets is going up from $15.50 to $16 an hour just went up. On January the 1st, we have new leave policies such as for bereavement leave. Workers, employers now are going to have to adopt a workplace violent conduct standards in the state. So there every year, there are two dozen or more uh, new laws adopted that affect the, the labor and employment world, whether you're on the employee side or the employer side both groups have to be cognizant of a number of new law changes that come in each and every year. But last year, the governor did veto a couple of bills, the most significant of which was to allow striking workers to claim unemployment insurance benefits. Are we going to see that again? We could see that again. What we might also see is some other aspects of the UI system addressed. For example, organized labor has long complained about the low amount of wages subject to the tax that creates the UI fund. Employees don't pay into UI, employers do, but they pay a percentage up to the first $7,000 of wages paid to each and every employee. That's very low amongst the states. So there's talk of helping to bolster the UI fund by increasing what they call the taxable wage base above that $7,000 figure, for example. That's great. Uh, and we're about out of time for today's episode, but any final thoughts on what we could expect here in 2024 from the governor and the legislature? Well, again, I think it's a big year uh, because of, one, the projected budget deficit, although the the rumor mill is that it won't be as high as what the Legislative Analyst's Office has projected. And of course, with the stock market doing much better at record levels right now, maybe this April's tax receipts will be pretty good, which will help offset that projected deficit. But the fact that we have a significant deficit could rain on the parade, shall we say, of not just budget expenditures, but also bills that create new programs or increase the work of state or local agencies. 
The other item is you're familiar with, uh, Jared, whether at the local, state, or federal levels, 2024 is a significant election year. Of course, we elect a president, perhaps reelect the sitting one, but all 80 members of the assembly are up. All seats are up every two years. Half of the 40-member Senate, 20 seats are up. Uh, every two years. And of course, many at the local level, whether it's school board, city council, mayor, board of supervisors. Well, with uh, that many legislators up for either re-election or running for another office, local or federal, it means politics really plays a significant role in both those budget debates as well as our public policy discussion. So negatively or positively, the politics of an election year will definitely impact the legislative debate on some of these issues from retail theft to funding health and human services and transportation. So that can definitely impact what we see out of Sacramento. That's great. I appreciate you joining us today on the Capstone. Chris, tell our listeners how they can find out a little bit more about you. And we'll also put it in the show notes for people. Sure. About me, I have a website, chrismckaley.com. And as you mentioned, if you put my name in YouTube or Chris McKaylee uh, blog, you can uh, find those YouTube videos and blogs. And certainly if your listeners have any issue areas or questions uh, that I haven't addressed in any you know videos or blogs, please let me know. I'm always very receptive to getting suggestions from whether it's my colleagues or legislative staff, but even members of the public sometimes contact me and say, can you please explain this? Or have you written on this topic before? So again, if your listeners have any suggestions, I'm all ears. Great. I appreciate that. I'm sure some people will take you up on that and maybe we'll have you back on in the future because we got to look at what, what are in those bills, right? We're at the early process, but the details will come out in a couple of months based on the timeline you talked about. But Chris, thank you for your time. Please hit subscribe so you get the weekly updates of when we release the next episode. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Capstone Government Affairs and Economic Development, a firm where I serve as managing partner. For more information, check us out at www.capstonegov.com and follow us on LinkedIn by typing in Capstone Government. Check out the show notes and for a full transcript, visit our website, www.capstonegov.com and follow us on LinkedIn by typing in Capstone Government or you can find me, your host, Jared Ash.